Hey, think back on 2017. Were there any surprises? Anything you weren't expecting? Any stories you thought you knew, but it turned out you didn't? I bet there were, and I bet that when you listen to NPR, you got the real story. You learn something. Every year is full of new stories and new perspectives on old stories and new understandings of the way the world works. And I bet that NPR is one of the big places you get that information. If you love Bullseye and you love the news work that NPR does, support your local NPR station. It is very easy to do, and they will give credit to us at Bullseye for supporting them. Go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye. That's donate.npr.org slash bullseye to give. Then once you have, share why you gave with the hashtag WhyPublicRadio. Let's keep learning together. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. So I, I'm just stating the obvious, but good comedy, and especially good stand-up comedy, often draws from pain. I mean, I think we all know that, right? I mean, you joke about a breakup. Maybe it stings a little less. But a little more time a few more tags, and all of a sudden you've got some material, right? Well, Judd Apatow, the director, producer, and these days also stand-up, knows that too. It's very common in comedy. It's kind of how things work. But he says the sad thing is, if you're a comedian, it kind of messes up the way your brain reacts to tragedy. It changes your brain in a very specific way, which is when bad things happen, you're kind of excited because you can turn it into something of value. So I, I threw out the first pitch at the Mets game, and it did not go well. And as soon as it happened, I thought, well, at least that went so bad that it'll make for a funny story. And in a way, as a comedian, that's the, the, the thing you have that most people don't have, is the second something weird that's just so painful happens, part of your brain goes, I'm so glad it happened. This is going to be hilarious to tell people about. So I guess we've got the worst case scenario down for the next hour. It's Bullseye. Coming up, Judd has returned to stand-up comedy for the first time in over two decades. He's warmed up, opening for some pretty big names like Amy Schumer and Mike Birbiglian. And it turns out he's got some fans of his own now. I also realize that people don't care about me that much. Like, people's actual interest in me is, in a very healthy way, very much in the middle. (laughs) Then I'll talk with Ramesh Ranganathan. He is a British stand-up comedian, and he's pretty big in the UK, but he's making a pretty risky career move right now. He came out here to Los Angeles... He rented out a giant amphitheater, and he's trying to fill it in a place where basically no one knows who he is. The idea sort of came from, like, the whole thing of setting yourself a goal or a big target or something like that, and then seeing what happens. But what has happened is it's become clear it's too big. (laughs) Then, paging Dr. Leo Spichemin. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So you probably know this, but Judd Apatow is one of the busiest and most notable names in comedy right now. And he got that way mostly by working behind the scenes. He wrote on The Larry Sanders Show. He ran The Ben Stiller Show. 
Um, he directed Knocked Up and Funny People and a bunch of other movies. He produced The Big Sick and Trainwreck and Girls and Crashing. But he actually got started as a stand-up back in the day, like way back in the day. I mean, this is 1992 on the HBO Young Comedian special. My uncle, he's got one of these electronic voice boxes, yet he's really happy. He thinks it's like funny. He's like, how you doing? I'm Bob. <laughs> Oh, yeah, solid gold. Now he's back on stage because I guess he didn't have enough stuff to do. Uh, anyway, he's been performing live for a few years now. He's got his first ever hour-long solo special. It's called Judd Apatow, The Return. It debuts on Netflix this week. Let's hear a little bit of it. Uh, this clip is toward the beginning of the act. And like the sort of you know seasoned professional that he is, Judd knows what gets the crowd going, a reading of a poem that he wrote in high school. I found this poem I wrote. It's called Divorce. It's kind of sad. Do you want to hear it? Okay. It gives you a little snapshot to my young life. It starts off with a few fights. They bark a lot, but nobody bites. But after a while, the fighting begins. They got worse and worse. And nobody wins. Don't be sad. I'm I'm rich. I'm very rich. (laughs) This boy is me. It's okay. It's okay. (laughs) Okay, the kids always run into a corner and hide. The parents say it's natural. You know they lied. For me, there was separation with lots of tears. Going out with my friends, marijuana and beers. (laughs) Not much, not much. Then they get back together and things are okay. But that doesn't last. No way. (laughs) Kind of a Dr. Seuss kind of a rhyme scheme there. Judd Apatow, welcome back to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's been too long. Um, That's a genuinely terrible poem. Like the extent to which that poem, even I think in the context of a 16-year-old or however old you were when you wrote that poem, it it is truly awful. What's wonderfully wrong about it is... My parents were going through this terrible divorce. As a kid, I had an awareness that it was good for my creativity. (laughs) And so I sat down and wrote this poem. I showed nobody. It was the first and last poem I ever wrote. There wasn't like 50 after it. I just, as some exercise, wrote this uh, poem. But it actually describes where I was as a kid, which was uh, trying to monetize my pain. (laughs) So why are why are you you've been doing uh you've been doing stand up at least a little bit since you started what since that tour for funny people right I did I, I did stand up a little bit just to write jokes for funny people but I wasn't doing it from my point of view I was doing some jokes that I thought would work for those characters but it certainly woke me up to the idea that I missed it and then when I worked with Amy Schumer on Trainwreck and she would come back from these tours while she was writing, I would just get jealous. It was literally just jealous. Like, oh, my God, she's living the dream that I had when I was a kid. And then when we started shooting, I said, I'm going to go on stage just to amuse you. I'm going to go on once just so you could see what it was like. And I went up at the Comedy Cellar one night and uh, much to her chagrin, it went well. She was hoping to see a disaster. And they were nice enough to say, hey, anytime you want to come in, 
we will put you up. Now, no one had ever said that to me when I first did stand up. I was always begging for stage time. So every night when we wrapped, I would just go do stand up and I had the best time doing it. I what's amazing to me is you know a lot of your stand up is about your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have this family that you're obviously very devoted to, but you also have the most demanding day job in the world and you've decided to abandon your family for a second highly demanding night job. They certainly have noticed. <laughs> but I actually only get out one night a week, sometimes two, and then when they want to go do things Without me, I'll just go run to a comedy club. So I, I haven't had to to uh, abandon them too often. But, it, you know, it's a, it's a great way to stay in touch with the audience and to not, you know, not get stale, not get rusty. I, I mean, there's a lot to be said for talking directly to a crowd as a way to stay fresh with what you do. If you just sit in the house all day long, then uh, what, what are you going to write? jokes about different uh, furniture polishes your uh your... A, that's a perfect example of something <laughs> that's inside of a house <laughs> good work carpet would also exactly. have worked carpet comedy's in the specifics though. I, I love lamp i love lamp <laughs> was it was it scary for you it was uh it was scary to admit that i wanted to do it and and there certainly were people who who said this seems to demean everything you've accomplished. Like, why would you want to do it? And I thought, I'm not proud of any of my stature. I'd rather be known as a comic than a director. I, I never thought there was any uh, any esteem to being a director. I'm, I'm much more impressed with Maria Bamford uh, than I am of any director. So uh, I, what was scary was, can I deserve to be here? Can I be on a lineup you know, with all the great people? at the comedy cellar that summer and not be the worst part of the show. How, how can I raise my game so that I'm at the same level as a lot of the people that I admire? And that was fun. And I mean, it's fun to have a new goal. That's really, really hard. It's like taking up skiing when you're 70. Well, I mean, I think there is something to be said for the fact that, you know, while you're a well-known and well-liked public figure, who's made very successful films and television shows, Nothing about your persona is heroic. No, not at all. You I'm, know, it's not like I'm I mean, a bland Jewish guy. Chris Rock walks on stage, and Chris Rock, obviously, one of the most brilliant yes. stand-up comics of all time. And you know, Chris Rock walks on stage to be a conquering hero. Like, there's no doubt that you know, while part of it may be about examining himself or um, you know, being negative about himself. Uh, it's not that he's, you know, purely externally focused or something, but like he's there to like thrill you. Sure. I don't think anybody has that relationship with Judd Apatow. No, they're, they don't expect me to preach. They don't scream preach when I get up there. It's very much just a sharing of my life, what I'm going through. A lot of comedians, their their whole thing is I have the answers. Here's what's wrong. Here's what we should do. And my point of view is. I really hope I'm not ruining my children. Uh, <laughs> I, that I don't really know if the choices I've made have been correct. I don't know if I'm doing a good job in any aspect of my life. And here's why I'm concerned. And and that is generally about it. Let's listen to some of Judd Apatow's new comedy special, which is called The Return. 
Um, speaking of ruining his children, uh, one of the questions that he faces is basically, what's the deal with people who decide to smoke pot with their kids when they become adults, uh, who try to make the pivot from being a parent to uh, being a bud bud when their kid turns 18? Let's take a listen. See, I couldn't do that. I couldn't smoke pot with my kids because if they saw how weird I get, I could never punish them or have any credibility again. Because I know where my brain would go. It would be like, I made you. Like, you didn't exist. And then I made love with your mother. And now you're here. I taught you language. You didn't know what a chicken was. And I would say, hey, that is called a chicken. And now when you see a chicken, you call it a chicken. You used to live in my balls. <laughs> like, for real, you used to live inside me with thousands of other brothers and sisters. What were they all like? <laughs> then you try to punish them, and your kid's like, you can't punish me. You said I live in your balls. Um, how is it different for you doing stand-up as a... I mean, you quit in what, the, the early, mid-90s? 92. I did the HBO Young Comedian special. Alongside, like, a murderer's row of sure. other stand-up comics. It was Ray Romano, Andy Kindler, Janine Garofalo, uh, Bill Bellamy, Nick DiPaolo. And the Ben Stiller show just got picked up by Fox. And I suddenly was, you know, running this show with Ben. And I was certainly underqualified to do it so all of my time went to the show and in a very organic way I realized I have no time to go to a club after a 16 hour day and then by the time it had spit me out uh, you know eight months later I thought well maybe I'm not supposed to be a stand-up comedian because I keep getting this other work which in a week pays me what I was making for a year in stand-up and this must be the universe telling me this is what I should do. And I was very intimidated by my friends who were geniuses. So I would see Jim Carrey and, and Adam Sandler and people like that. And I always felt like, you know, I, I was trying to describe it to someone. It's like if if you were starting a band and your best friend was starting Radiohead and you thought, maybe I shouldn't start a band. <laughs> I don't think I can do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel like if I was on stage before or after Andy Kindler um, or Maria Bamford, there's only two reactions you can have. One is perfect art is achievable in our lifetimes. Uh, I need to dedicate all of my life's energy towards that goal. Yes. And the other would be like, uh, I got to find a new lane. Well, th here's the thing. I, I've had to accept that... There is different ways to express yourself. You know, I'm a Jackson Brown fan. I, I like people who share their emotions very directly. That doesn't mean I don't love Radiohead, but I feel like I'm more in a Jackson Brown lane in how I express myself. So in comedy, yes, you have Maria Bamford, who you could say is the, ra is the Radiohead of comedy. And then you have people like Ray Romano, who I'm probably more in the world of someone who's just sharing the absurdity of dealing with this life in a very direct, here's who I am way. I mean, I remember seeing Stephen Wright when he first started performing and it blew your mind open, but you always thought, I'm never going to do that. But that doesn't mean there isn't great value to 
uh, you know, the style I work in. I don't do Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I do Knocked Up, and and it's taken me a while to realize that's okay. I mean, there's there's, there's a lot of ways to do this. Crashing this show that you make with Pete Holmes, um, or that Pete Holmes makes with you, is also about that that relation that weird relationship that comics have with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, what's different, do you think, about the way that comics relate to each other from uh, accountants or uh, construction workers or advertising executives? I think one re- one commonality is that comedians are not comfortable with how everything works. That as a group of people, male and female, they're all saying, this is all so weird. This life is so weird. The way we behave is so weird. The power structure is bizarre. The Just the, the social aspect of life is bizarre. And we're all dissecting it just just to understand it, to try to survive it. And I don't know if every other profession is is doing that. It, you know, when you sit with a table of comedians, I don't think they're any more troubled than most other people, but I think they have a fascination by how it all works. Like, why do we relate to each other in this way? How do my parents screw me up? Why do people make money for doing this? They could just like, examine all of these issues that I think just bug us. I, I remember being a kid and listening to George Carlin and really relating to his disgust. <laughs> <laughs> and the Marx Brothers were like that. Duck Soup, it was just a diatribe against politics and governments and war. And I related as a kid because I thought, yeah, there's so much that's just I, I I love that there'd be a moment where they would just humiliate some rich guy in a tuxedo. Well, I, I think one of the interesting things about it, right, is it's like this weird kind of it's this group of people who are relating over being alienated. Yes, I, I do think that's it. And 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 that that's also why comedians enjoy each other, because it's always a funny conversation. And I think that comedians have a great sense of humor about all of our uh, our wounds and the mistakes that we make. When comedians get together, they love to share the awful thing they just did, the terrible thing that's happened to them. You know, it's like being with, you know, I spent a lot of time when I was a kid with vets because my dad was a vets activist. And it's like there's just this expectation that there is an open wound uh, and everyone is going to get a kick out of talking about it. Yes, exactly. Like both of those things. Like it could very easily be that the, the expectation is there. there's an open wound and everyone's going to commiserate and be miserable about it. And there is some commiseration and misery. Yes. But like mostly it's that it's this kind of un- unstated thing like everything is broken let's have a nice time together about it. Yes, that you want to run to your friends to tell them who broke your heart and how and and go over all the details. Uh, I think that one thing I noticed when I started doing stand-up comedy again was it changes your brain in a very specific way, which is when bad things happen, you're kind of excited because you can turn it into something of value. So I, I threw out the first pitch at the Mets game. And it did not go well. And as soon as it happened, I thought, well, at least that went so bad that it'll make for a funny story. And in a way, as a comedian, that's the the, the thing you have that most people don't have, is the second something weird 
that's just so painful happens, part of your brain goes, I'm so glad it happened. This is going to be hilarious to tell people about. It seems like um, the way the comedy world has changed, especially in the last five or ten years, it has really been a uh, a wake-up call to some people in the industry to understand the way that, like, while they thought of themselves as the ultimate outsider and inclusive of all outsiders, that actually people with different circumstances were not included and were alienated and hurt by the way that they were related to in this world. Mm-hmm. You know, like a, a, a buddy of mine who hosts the sister show of this podcast, which is called Pop Rocket, Guy Branham, is, you know, one of the most brilliant and hilarious people I've ever known. And he wrote this piece about the way that he felt alienated from the comics table at a club in New York. Oh, I read that. I disagreed with a lot of that because I don't think that it's the same as the era he's discussing. I think he's talking about an era that was where you had a lot of guys who like to be rough on each other and insult each other. There was a, a few of them that leaned right a little bit, and it was a tough table at at, uh, at the Comedy Cellar. But when you go to the Comedy Cellar now, it's a very inclusive place. There's a lot of women. There's, a, there's, there's a people of all kinds uh, there, and it isn't that. But I could see why it would be traumatizing to walk into that, because there is nothing scarier than to walk up to a table of comedians that you don't know. And in fact, if you watch Crashing, a lot of the jokes are about Pete trying to sit with people and them looking at looking at him like, who the f- are you? And how do you earn a place at that table? But a lot of that is our own insecurity about how funny we are and also how good we are at jumping in with new people. Um, but I do find, especially at the Comedy Cellar, that it, it I think that they have evolved in, in who they book and it's a much more progressive uh, place these days. We'll continue my conversation with Judd Apatow in a minute. When we come back, we talk about what he's done to make the projects he works on more inclusive and diverse. He says there's stuff you actually have to choose to do, but it's not super hard. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter, the hiring site that offers a smarter way to find quality candidates fast. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 top job boards with one click. Then their smart technology notifies the most qualified candidates to apply. In fact, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the director and producer Judd Apatow. After over 20 years out of the stand-up game, he's back on stage. His special called Judd Apatow The Return is out December 12th on Netflix. It seems like a lot of people are getting more understanding uh, and I think especially like, for, for example, recently with all the issues of uh, sexual harassment and assault, of the ways in which other factors besides the survival of the fittest 
uh, affect the trajectory of people's careers. Like one of the things that I had not spent much time thinking about until the Louis C.K. revelations, and like you know, I I really admired Louis, and he'd been on the show before and always been very kind to me. He directed one of my favorite movies. Um, was the way in which, you know, for women, and I just had never thought about this because I'm a dude um, and had never had this experience, but th the way that, like, harassment, even relatively low-grade harassment, ends people's careers because they sure. just say, I, I, I don't want to live this way. Absolutely. This I, isn't I, worth it to me. I think that you want to work in an environment that's friendly, so whatever job you have, it, it, you, it, say you're headed into a law office and everyone is cutthroat and vicious and and backbiting, you might go, I don't like the law anymore. And if a comedy club or the comedy world is like that, a lot of sensitive souls who have a lot to say and want to express themselves, they will give up. Uh, and that, I think, is a very sad part about it. I do think that men are often completely tuned out to the effect they have on women when they're disrespectful, how, how much it hurts not to be treated uh, as an equal. You know, Lena Dunham, you know, wrote a great chapter in her book about this where she said that there were people that would, you know, want to hang out and they were, you know, sometimes directors she admired and she felt great that they respected her and wanted to talk shop and make a, a connection. But then in, in some circumstances, it was all the beginning of a very creepy advance on her and 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 that she felt so terrible when she realized that it wasn't about respect. And I think that's something that men are going to begin to tune into how much that they can hurt people and, and men who do it to, you know, to women or, or, or men. It seems like you've sort of taken it upon yourself as part of your public persona to be vociferous about this stuff, to allow yourself to be mad about this stuff. I mean, you, you were so persistent and intense in your condemnation of Bill Cosby, which you, you do some Bill Cosby material in the, in the special. It seemed from the outside like it was about you kind of getting this new perspective on this world that you lived in. I mean, like, comedy is your home. I, in some ways, the Cosby thing broke my heart because he meant so much to me and was one of the main reasons I loved comedy. And I was talking to a friend who was a victim who decided not to come forward. And Cosby had his lawyer out there saying all these women were liars, and then she told me the story, and it was the same as the other stories. And I just thought, you. You. You're going to call all these women liars, so you 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 committed a crime against them once, and now you're gonna, you're going to attack them again. You're going to try to destroy these people off, and no one was talking about it. Just just a few people seemed upset, and I thought, how come no one's upset? How come no one is furious? Shouldn't you be furious if people you care about get hurt like this? And I did make a conscious choice to just not shut up about it, like. I feel like this is going to go away if I if I stop talking, and and it, it was it was you know it, it seemed a little unhinged at times, but 
shouldn't we be unhinged about a guy knocking people unconscious and raping them? Like, isn't that the thing you're supposed to get deeply upset about? And I do think that because of that, because of Trump, people are slowly waking up that there's a lot of crime happening. There's a lot of uh, abuse happening. And it is a very messy time. And there's a lot of concerns, uh, uh, you know, about making sure these things are handled properly and the right people get dealt with. But the world is changing now. I do hope that, you know, a guy in an office, when he has the idea to do something bad, he might think, if I do this, my career might be over. And I think that's an important fear to have. You're not supposed to treat people that way. It, it really does bother me because it's so easy to be kind to people. It's so easy to treat people well. You know, uh, you know I, I said on stage, it's so easy not to be a sexual harasser. You, you do nothing and you've already proven yourself to be a great guy. Just do nothing. And hopefully this will lead to positive change. Did you think about the way that um, your own power operates in the world or the way that you've structured your own organization? I think, and, and I don't. I mean, I'm not suggesting because you're I'm just saying I didn't do it. I'm just saying I didn't do it, Jesse. people. Um, <laughs> but rather because you know, like I have very, you know, I have a dozen employees or whatever. But like, it certainly made me think I have to think about the way that in my weird little organization our structures operate to make sure that I am not supporting this. I think what's interesting is that people tend to hire people that they're comfortable with. If you're a good person, you tend to have some nice people around you. I, I would assume if we, we checked out Team Tom Hanks, you know, he, he probably has nice people. Uh, and I don't really put much thought into it other than I'm attracted to a certain type of hopefully creative and kind person, male or female and that in my office, everyone respects each other. And if they don't, they know I care about it. They know they can come to me, if they're, even if it has nothing to do with harassment, if they're just in conflict with each other, that I'm there to help them figure out how they can be happy and comfortable and do their best work and how to get along with it, the person, not to ignore them, but to try to figure out what's at the root of it. And that takes some work, but that is... That's essential. And, I, of course, I learned an enormous amount from Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor watching how they ran girls, how they hired people, how uh, inclusive they were in, in, in staffing. What did you like? Well, I think, you know, in the world of comedy, you know, you'd go into these rooms and it would be 10 guys and one woman. And, you know, as soon as I started working with Lena and Jenny and they said, well, we're, that's not going to be how we do this. You know, we're going to be you know, much closer to a 50-50 Situation, uh, and we're going to look for a lot of female directors, and uh, and we're going to have a multicultural crew, and a lot more women on the crew, and you have to make a choice to do that. It's very easy to not do it. You could just say hire the crew, and usually your line producer will just get you eighty guys. You have to say no. This is what we're going to do. Like for instance, we have a lot of uh, veterans who work on our shows because we we we. We were talking to the Easter Seals people, and they said it's a, it's very hard for veterans to get work when they come back. And we have this program to get them uh, crew jobs on TV shows. And we said, great. And so suddenly all these jobs that might go to, like, your friend's nephew, all these favor jobs, 
become entry points for veterans to get into the business. And it's been like the best thing we ever did. But you have to make a conscious choice to diversify. And uh, and most, you know, most shows are slow to do that. It's changing. But it only changes because a place like HBO says you have to have 50% female directors. That's just our rule. And you know what? That's world changing. And then the most important thing is you can't hire the same 50% who are already in the business. You have to give people breaks. You have to give people of color breaks. You have to give them their, their first opportunity to direct. And that's what changes things is, uh, is getting people into the business who weren't there before. Are you um, proud of your new special? I am proud of it. It's very hard to watch yourself, <laughs> you know, especially if your self-esteem is shaky, you know, to sit in an editing room and here's how I walk. Here's how I talk. Oh, look how self-satisfied I am there. Just shut up. You know, it's very hard to like that guy. And I think that's how most people feel when they hit editing. It is tough to stare at yourself. That's why a lot of people like Owen Wilson will say, I never watch my movies. I have seen almost none of them. Adam Driver says that. And I do get it. There's a part of you that just wants to do the work and then run away for other people to judge. But I did get to a place where I was very happy with the special. There's a lot of fun, long stories. I, I show a lot of photographs and illustrate stories in a way that I think is, is interesting. And uh, when I was completely done, I thought, I think, I, think I, I did what I set out to do there. What do you feel like you set out to do? Uh, not suck. <laughs> no, I, I set out to uh, be myself and share my life and share what I've been through and what my concerns are and to just be open and have a conversation with the audience that's really funny and true. Well, Judd, it's always really nice to have you on the show. Thank you for coming back. It was great to be here. Judd Apatow. Go check out his stand-up special now. It's called Judd Apatow, The Return. It's on Netflix this week. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So Ramesh Ranganathan knows that you probably haven't heard of him. In the UK, though, he's a legit celebrity. He's a stand-up comedian. Uh, He's also been a regular on some national shows there for a few years now including spinoffs of The Apprentice and The Great British Bake Off. He also hosted a travel show called Asian Provocateur. In it, he travels around the world reconnecting with his parents' home country of Sri Lanka. The second season features his mom throughout the entire thing. It's very funny. And now he's giving American stardom a shot. And he's doing it in a really strange kind of crazy way. He's just moved out here with his wife, his kids, his mom, and everything, and he's going to make his big debut an enormous debut. He rented out the Greek Theater in Los Angeles. This is a 6,000-seat theater. This is the kind of theater where a band plays it and they make a theatrical film there. This is like Yanni Live at the Acropolis or something. The show is Thursday, December 21st. I'm probably not exaggerating when I say that Romesh is a little bit terrified. When we first heard about this in November, he had sold, wait for it, 74 of the 6,000 seats. If you can make it out, though, you're in for a treat. Let's take a listen to a little bit of Ramesh Ranganathan's stand-up. You'll hear what I'm talking about. In this clip, he's talking about his mom. She's a 
She is a wonderful woman, uh, my mother, but she... Um, Okay. Um, she doesn't actually consider me to be a proper Asian. This is a sad state of affairs in my life. My mum calls me a coconut. I don't know if you've heard this term. <laughs> don't applaud it. Brown on the outside, white on the inside. So my mum calls me, you're coconut. And, and the reason... <laughs> the reason my mum calls me a coconut is because originally Sri Lankan, my mother tongue is Tamil, and I cannot speak it. And the reason I cannot speak it is because my mum and dad never spoke it to me <laughs> when I was growing up, and now my mum blames me <laughs> for not being able to speak it. So she'd come up to me and she'd go, and i say, I don't know what you're on about. Right? <laughs> and then she'd go, why don't you know? Right? Because there's no Rosetta Stone Tamil. Ramesh Ranganathan, welcome to Ball Day. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me on, just I appreciate it. So tell me about this uh, scheme that you've hatched here in the United States. I gather you have rented a theater despite the absence of a local fan base. Yeah, that's sort of the idea is sort of um, I've basically hired out the Greek and I'm doing I'm performing there on the 21st of December, but I don't have a yeah, I don't have any profile here. So I just thought so I've been here for a while and I just thought I'm just going to take a run at it and see how I get on is sort of the idea. It was if, I don't know why the idea sort of came from like the whole thing of setting yourself a goal or a big target or something like that uh, and then see what happens. But um, what has happened is it's become clear it's too big. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are you, are you famous to Sri Lankan Americans at all? Uh, I, like, there, there are certainly... There are comics who can connect with an affinity group yes. that is transnational... And they can go and perform anywhere that there are those people, you know? Yeah, I don't believe that's in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh, I do know that my mum went to a Sri Lankan restaurant uh, recently, just down the road from us. And they did say, oh, you're coconuts, mum. But <laughs> they, so, That's not necessarily. <laughs> but they did, what they did not say is, we are going to buy 5,000 tickets to the group. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Um, it, it seems like your relationship with your mum is a driving force in your work. You, you actually made an entire television program with your mum in the UK. Yes. Well, we sort of, um, so we, my mum has always, um, but the thing was, is somebody, a production company had approached me about doing a travel show and the travel shows, you know, like comedians doing travel shows is not a new thing, but what I thought... I mean, like you could be the next Michael Palin, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Around the world in 80 days. Yeah. Who doesn't love that? Exactly. But the thing was, is that I found that the ones that I enjoyed were the ones that it felt like there was a point to what they were doing or there was a reason that you're watching them do these things. Um, so, yeah, so, and at that time, my whole life, my mum has uh, complained about the fact that I don't know anything about my heritage. My brother and I both don't. And um, and that's partly because they were so determined that we be westernised, that they wanted us to have like an, as, as close to an English upbringing as they could give us, you know. Um, and so, but then once I had children, my mum sort of was like became worried that the children were not going to know anything about their their sort of lineage or whatever. 
and so that had been something that had that she'd always complain about. So we thought it was a good starting point for a for a show. Do you know what I mean? And it gave everything a reason. So that was kind of where it came from. Why do you think your parents, when you were growing up, wanted you to be so English as as first generation immigrants themselves? I I think they would just well because part of the reason they went over to England was because they wanted their children to have a better start and and they thought it was a good thing to do. They wanted them, us to be educated in England and have have good lives, I suppose, whatever that means. Um, and so what they didn't want then, I guess they get worried, they got worried that we were going to be seen as different or whatever and that would mean that we'd have a worse time at school or we'd struggle to get certain opportunities uh, as we got older and stuff. And, like, I think my mum sort of now, my, my dad's no longer with us, but my mum, when she sort of talks about it now, she does regret that, I think, to a, to a degree. Because if you're being taught about your culture and your language when you're a kid, you just soak it all up. But now, I don't want to hear that. Do you, like, do you know what I mean? I, I mean, I do, <laughs> but I don't, have a, I don't have that sort of... I'm not like a sponge anymore, do you know what I mean? I'm a person that doesn't even want to make new friends, do you know what I mean? Let alone take on all those kind of things. So... I barely um, want to leave the house. Exactly, and we're about the same age. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So you're sort of like, it's just I'm not, I'm not into this. And then my mum, and then we, my mum and I had a bit of an argument because she wanted to teach our children Tamil, and then I, and really what I should have said was yes, that sounds great, and I could still say that, but I just something about them being able to converse in a language that I don't understand or speak. <laughs> Just felt like there were too many opportunities there for her to sort of organise some sort of coup. Yeah, you your concern mean? is that they'd be plotting against exactly, you. Exactly, exactly. So I was like, no. So I basically made my children more ignorant as a result of my own paranoia, do you know what I mean? What was your relationship like when you were old enough to be self-aware but not old enough to be a grown-up to your own Sri Lankan-ness? I mean, was it just something that you resented, an inconvenience in your life? I wouldn't say it was an inconvenience. I mean, my parents didn't sort of immerse me in it. Um, but then I remember, like, when my dad passed away, like, six, seven, six years ago, I remember being at his funeral and not really understanding what the ceremony was and the language that was being spoken at it. And I was sort of thinking, this is my own dad's funeral that I just sort of don't get. Do you know what I mean? Like, certainly the religious and Sri Lankan part of it. So those things you sort of feel sad about and... Um, and that was actually, you know, part of the reason of me going to Sri Lanka as part of the show. Had you ever been before? I'd been, like, twice before. Once when I was, like, a baby, and then once when I was, like, eight years old, I had to... Uh, my grandmother passed away, and the next male down in the family has to perform the the like, the funeral ritual or whatever. So I had to... I, was, I went over there to... Uh, to perform a ceremony, I had no idea. I just didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I was just sort of guided and directed to to do this thing. Um, but I don't have... I mean, I remember my mum's still got a house there, so I remember that a little bit. But I didn't really have any... I didn't know anything about it, really. So when I went back, it really was... I mean, I recognised my mum's house and the food, and that was about it, really. And also, my mum and dad were very... And again, not exclusive to Sri Lankan culture by any stretch of the imagination, but, like... The hospitality element of welcoming people into your home and feeding them and stuff like that, that is something that, um, that it's weird because my Britishness sits in direct contrast to that. And so 
I have this thing where I grew up around my mum and dad inviting people around and welcoming people in, and I've grown up to become the sort of person that doesn't want to interact with other human beings. So, <laughs> so you sort of, so it sort of led to me giving people cake and tea, but being really pissed off about it. Basically, that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of how it's worked out. I mean, England's slogan is "Nation of Warmth," right? Yes, it's yeah, a legendary so. for its emotional intimacy. It's <laughs> almost immediate emotional bond between people when they meet each other. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's incredible. It really is. <laughs> Even more with Ramesh Ranganathan in a few minutes. He's a stand-up comedian, but in his youth, he was a rapper and. Let's just say I dropped a beat and made him rap. And so, you know, I dropped a beat and made him rap. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. 2017 is wrapping up, and basically we are living in the future. You have access to so, so, so much media. I mean, everything on Earth. You can watch Season 3, Episode 4 of The Mary Tyler Moore Show right now, just like that. And I know that that counts for podcasts, too. I mean, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of podcasts, and you are choosing to listen to this one. Thank you so much for listening to Bullseye. Thank you so much for supporting Bullseye. And I hope that you will also choose to support your local NPR station. That support supports NPR. It supports what we do. It's so important. Go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye to support your station. That's donate.npr.org slash bullseye. And then, once you've done it, tell the world. Use the hashtag WhyPublicRadio and share why you decided to support public radio. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get on with the show in a second. But first, we've got another new podcast here at MaximumFun.org. It is a really fun one. I think you're going to like it. It's called Go Fact Yourself. It's a live comedy game show. Here's how it works. Basically, pretty much everybody thinks that they're an expert in something, some category of trivia like The Simpsons or Sega Genesis games or types of bird. But how much do they actually know? J. Keith Van Stratton and Helen Hong bring together the smartest celebrities they know, and then they find out exactly that. Go Fact Yourself features great comedians and actors and musicians answering arcane questions on topics they claim to be experts in. But don't worry, if they slip up, there are real experts on hand to break down the real facts. The debut episode just dropped. It has Jimmy Pardo, stand-up comedian and podcaster, and Beth Littleford from The Daily Show and Dog with a Blog. It's a real blast. I, I really enjoy this show. You're going to laugh a lot, and you'll actually learn a lot, too. Subscribe to Go Fact Yourself now. Give it a listen. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Ramesh Ranganathan, is a British stand-up comedian making his United States debut in a very big way by renting out a 6,000-seat theater, the Greek, here in Los Angeles. You alluded to the fact that your childhood had kind of a big economic schism in the middle mm, of it. Yeah. Um, what was that? So my uh, my dad was, like, doing quite well, and we were sort of... Uh, yeah, we were well off and we're at private school and stuff like that. And then my dad just, he ended up leaving that company or being fired. And then he ended up just not being able to figure out a way out of the difficulties of 
he didn't want to get a new job. He, well, he was thinking about getting a new job. He wanted to set up his own business. He sort of, and so he sort of ended up dabbling in a few things that all went wrong. Um, and so we ended up getting our house repossessed. And then at the same time as that, um, he, for what you know, he he ended up sort of seeing, an, he ended up being with another woman, seeing another woman. Um, and so my mum and dad's relationship sort of fell apart uh, for a while. How old were you? I was about like 13, 12, 13, 14. Did you have a relationship with your dad when that happened? Uh, I did. Um, yes, I did. I mean, I was very close to my dad. I think sort of my mum and my brother are very similar, and I'm like my dad was, like personality wise. Um, in terms of like, uh, sorry, my mum and brother are very fiery and sort of they give a lot in relationships but demand a lot as well. Whereas myself and my dad don't do anything and uh, give very little but demand very little as well. So it's sort of complete polar opposites. I feel like maybe this is me projecting from my own experience, but I feel like one of the ways that you can react in your personality and your kind of forming of self when you have that kind of emotional pain and inconsistency in your, especially in adolescence with your parents, is that distance that you describe, that you kind of protect yourself by saying, I will not wrong anyone, but at the same time, I will not take any risks, you know, emotionally. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think it was just sort of, I just sort of became very disconnected from everything. So school, social life, just everything I sort of... Uh, and my relationship with my parents suffered and stuff. So, yeah, I, th- I think you, I think it, it's just a self-defence mechanism. You think, I'm just going to put a wall up around. But that is... I'm describing typical teenage behaviour, so I don't know how much to attribute to circumstances or just general growing up but by it's, nature, aren't you? It's also how you described your personality as an adult That's true. just now that to me. True. That is true. <laughs> that is true, yeah. Yeah, so maybe. that Maybe that was more formative than I thought. You ended up in, like, one of the most classic, responsible, middle-class person jobs you could ever have in a million years, which is that you were teaching adolescence math. Correct, yes, yeah. Did you take that job, did you fall backwards into that job, or was that a job that, was that a path that you chose because it felt like a responsible thing to do? Well, I kind of um, had a situation, well, my mum and dad were sort of, desperate for me to do something lucrative you know and like I'd done economics and maths at university and so they wanted me to go I guess my dad had visions of me going into investment banking and making a ton of money or whatever and so and then and and I didn't want to do that and so I ended up just doing a couple of jobs before I got into teaching I ended up doing just a couple of crap jobs but the the reason I ended up in teaching is because I'd always thought that would be a good thing to do and I'd, I'd had a bad maths teacher when I was a kid and so that would give me... I remember thinking when I had that teacher, I'd love to be a maths teacher and be a good one that actually is like makes kids want to do maths. Because I remember, like... It so was, you're telling me that you went into the helping professions out of spite? I think so, yeah. yeah. I think it was just <laughs> anger what happened. But I didn't do that because uh, I think it was... I just sort of thought, oh, let me... Maybe that's just a, a thing that I'm thinking. I don't really want to do that. But then ended up doing this job, like, I was a cost analyst for an airline caterers. And basically what that is is the airlines tell you what they want on the trays for their food, and I tell them how much it's going to cost for the whole fleet, right? So that job, as I described it to you, 
that was a lot more exciting than the job itself. That description <laughs> that I just gave you. And I literally just woke up yeah, from yeah, a brief yeah. nap that I took <laughs> in so the that, middle of that sentence. But I remember like being at work one day and I was like tapping away at my computer and then I thought I just felt really depressed and I went up to the toilet and I sat in one of the cubicles this is really dark and I just cried for a bit right and then I came out and I and I sat down and I felt amazing and then from then on like once a month I reckon at that job as a cost analyst I'd go up to the toilet and have a little cry and then come downstairs then eventually I got to the point where I thought you can't this can't be the right job so literally I sort of came back from the toilet one day. I'd had my little sob. I felt better. I thought, right, I'm going to do something. I phoned up the place and I got booked to start like a week later and then I just immediately handed in my resignation. That's kind of how it worked. Weirdly, was enjoying teaching and then thought I'd I'd always thought I'd just give stand-up comedy a go. Just give it a go and it'd be one of those things that I've tried and I can have a story at the next staff party, or go, oh, I'm going to try and stand up comedy for it. And um, so I, did, I just booked him for a gig, and I just didn't have, I had no idea how difficult it was to do stand up. You know, when you're first starting, I just thought I'd write, a, I'd put a set together, write 10 minutes. You always think that when you start, I can write 20, I'd write 20 minutes, half an hour, or whatever, I'll go and do that. Anyway, I went and booked myself in for a gig. I lied to this club that I'd done a few gigs, and they booked me on, and then um, I died on my ass spectacularly. Like it was a, it was awful, as most comedians do their first gig. And then, but I, I really... I, I have to correct you. I talk to a lot of comedians about their careers. Yeah. Usually they did spectacularly poorly on their second through that's 25th true, actually. appearances. Yeah, that's usually, right. usually the, I feel like it's a self-selecting group of people that are selected by the happenstance that they happened to get lucky their first time and they yeah. thought I could do this and gained false confidence. That is true. That is the more common story, actually. You're right. Let's hear some more comedy from my guest, uh, Ramesh uh, Ranganathan. Um, his new special is called Irrational. He recorded it in London at the Hammersmith Apollo Legendary Theater. And um, in this clip, he's, he's talking about his social media habits and spe- specifically how he likes to use Facebook. You know my favorite thing about Facebook, my favorite thing about Facebook, and your favorite thing as well, is when people you know hit rock bottom. (laughs) I don't think I could go on anymore. Like. (laughs) Sometimes I unlike it and like it again just so they get the notification, do you know what I mean? (laughs) Still watching! Now that you have a TV show on, on in the UK, on the BBC yeah. Three, and, uh, you know, the first series or season of the show was you going to Sri Lanka, I imagine that also uh, connected you with a world of British Sri Lankans who had ideas and expectations about you being a famous British Sri Lankan person. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, because what I was sort of nervous about was... As I sort of said to you earlier, like my experience was that I was less connected with my heritage than anybody else I knew or anybody I was at school with. So I felt like when I was making the show, when we were making the show, I felt it was like very exposing because I was being completely honest about my level of ignorance. But there were lots of people that sort of said they they related to it, and not just Sri Lankans, just you know, children of immigrants of all cultures. And and actually, the the one, the one thing I got was a lot of uh, a lot of Jewish people telling me that they could relate to my relationship with my mum, like they they felt that that mirrored their experiences completely. Do people like your mum better than you? Many people do, yes. Yeah, that is something I've had to contend with. It's difficult, isn't it? Because, like, 
you sort of uh, you don't want to be annoyed about that because it's your mum, but at the same time, <laughs> it is a person that isn't you being funny. <laughs> Well, also, I mean, just like you're mad that like you have dedicated your life to something that apparently your mom just had to walk in front of the camera to. I know it is like it is mad. And like we. um, Yeah, it's I I do get a lot of people sort of getting in touch with me going, your mom's hilarious. And isn't it? And exactly what you said. Isn't it funny that you have to work at it and your mom's just like funny. You just put a camera on her. So let's uh, let's take a listen to a little bit of the show. It's called Asian Provocateur. And in this clip, your mom, Shanti, uh, has basically planned an entire day's worth of stuff for the two of you to do together before the trip starts. And you are not thrilled at the prospect. You know, what we should be doing, really, yeah. is not spending any time together to prepare ourselves because we're going to have a massive dose of spending time together. So you don't like to spend time with I'm your mother? Saying, no, I'm not saying that. We live in the same town. We see each other all the time. Why do you want no, me to... No, 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 no. I don't see you at all. Even to get hold of you over the phone, it's very difficult. I, I text you sometimes and I don't even get a reply yeah. for two, three days. Mum, I'll tell you but what. But I'm the Prime Minister of England. So... Um... You have a podcast called Hip Hop Saved My Life where you interview people about their relationships with hip hop. Yes. Uh, both uh, musicians and comedians and other folks. Um, what was your relationship with hip hop? Um, I, um, I sort of started listening to it when um, I was about, I guess, 10 or 11 years old or something. And... I think it was like Public Enemy. Well, I don't think, I know. It was Public Enemy I started listening to. Somebody left the tape at my house and I was like, this is Public Enemy. And um, I loved I, Well, I, I loved it. But I did rap for a bit and so, get into all of those kind of things. So I was properly like... I remember like something KRS-One saying something about you live hip-hop and you listen to rap music or whatever. And so that was me, like, I'm living the lifestyle, blah, blah, blah. So I properly threw myself into it, yeah. I mean, I have an instrumental here. Have you got some bars? You got some bars? Mate, I don't have bars. Yeah, you got bars. I've seen you do it on television. I've seen your verses on television. (laughs) Drop the beat, Jesus. I bring the butter, you know this ain't a margarine I'm quick to clean up the scene like my name was MC Windowline. I'm in your face like the mace up from the canister My lyric brings the pain like testicles hitting on banisters When you're skipping stairs to battle this ain't fair You're really impaired plus your knees are knocking cause you're scared I'm reckless, I bring dominance to this hip hop game Look into your mirror frame, loudly proclaim my name Five times, five lines, come busting out your looking glass Smoke will choke your throat like when you burnt that in cooking class In the first year, your bubble gets First here, if you think you ain't outdone by the number one from London. Now we are talking. Now we have an NPR interview, Ramesh. Make you spit. Wow. What's it like for you to hear other people's stories about their relationship with hip-hop as a... I mean, like, I was listening to your episode with the uh, very, very funny British comedy writer and producer Robert Popper. Yes. An occasional performer as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Robert, who was known as Bobby P on the program, um, <laughs> which I enjoyed very much, yeah. you know, was talking about this odd kind of... I would never have guessed it from knowing him a little bit in real life, 
but like the, the odd like emotional centrality of this in his life. And you must hear that from so many people that you wouldn't expect. But also, you're, it was also, uh, I know you're not quite 40, but it was 40-something-year-old dudes grumbling <laughs> to each other <laughs> was the yeah. other main theme. Yeah, um, I sort of, uh, we, I think the, the, the episode that you name is one of the ones where it's really good because you get someone that people are not expecting to be so into it talking about it. And that's when it's really great. I mean, obviously, it's great when we have rappers on. But, you know, there are comedians who people like they'll come on and say they're into hip hop and you go, I'm not surprised by that. And it's still entertaining and fun. But I think some of the best moments on that podcast are when it's like when you're talking to someone that nobody would have guessed. What I mean is like you get sort of lots of different things happen. And I'm sure you have this on, on this podcast where obviously you don't know what you're going to get from guests. But sometimes there's loads of hip hop talk but it's not very funny and it's very sort of gets very in sometimes there's no there's little to no hip-hop chat but you think it's funny enough to put out and then every sort of degree in between and you just sort of go with whatever you get from the guests but I've had mates come on a couple of mates have come on uh comedians who it's become really apparent like two minutes in that they've blagged you know they they have got no idea really a, a, above and beyond the two artists that they that they sort of maybe wikipedia before they came on um but it's still fun it's still fun to have them on but i think that it's at its best when you get someone unexpected sort of really talking about it uh knowledgeably and you just wouldn't have, yeah you just wouldn't have guessed that they'd be that into it well romesh rang and nathan thank you so much for taking all this time to be on bullseye it was really great to meet you and get to talk to you you too thank you very much for having me i appreciate it romesh rang and nathan folks that show at the greek theater in los angeles is thursday december 21st tickets are i'm gonna go ahead and say still available and he needs all the help he can get you can also check out his podcast. It's called Hip Hop Saved My Life. Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a little culture recommendation for me. We call it The Outshot. So 30 Rock was a show with a thousand nearly perfect jokes, but there was only one most perfect joke among all those nearly perfect jokes. I actually interviewed on this show Donald Glover about it once. He wrote on 30 Rock. He summed it up in two words. Bad doctor. Tracy, who is your doctor? Dr. Spaceman! Dr. Spaceman! Oh, brother, look around. we got to find his medication. Dr. Spaceman, Dr. Spaceman. Well, Dr. Spaceman. I owe you an apology, Trey. This is Dr. Leo Spachemin. Chris Parnell played Dr. Spaceman on 30 Rock, or Dr. Spachemin, I guess, but let's be honest, I'm going to say Spaceman. I just enjoy saying Dr. Spaceman. He showed up a few times a year on the show, and every time, and I, I watched every episode of 30 Rock, every time I would literally whoop in excitement sitting there, often by myself, on my living room sofa. Hi, I'm sorry. I got this number under fertility in the Writer's Guild Health Manual. I'm also listed under meth addiction and child psychiatry. So what can I help you with? I should start by saying that I can't personally help you conceive. Uh, something happened to me while scuba diving. Parnell's dad was one of those golden-throated radio DJs. 
And Chris, the younger Parnell, inherited the silky voice. And besides that, he has this kind of square, authoritative quality. And he's, you know, like handsome enough to trust, but not so handsome that he's threatening. He genuinely seems like someone who would give you some reassuring advice. And all of that makes him very, very good at that very simple joke. Bad doctor. Well, must be psychosomatic. Now, don't worry. That's just a fancy doctor word for your brain is broken. Unfortunately, there's no field of medicine that deals with the brain. But I can give you a pamphlet for a cult. Chris Parnell is such a solid, grounded, sincere actor that I genuinely don't think that there is anything he could say in that beautiful voice that would be too crazy to be believed. Can you read the top line over there? Dear Dr. Spichemin, thank you for your submission. The New England Journal of Medicine does not publish X-rated cartoons. Well, why not? So frustrating. But at least I heard it from a friend. I mean, forget about the subcategory bad doctor. This might be the best dumb guy joke I have ever seen in any medium. I mean, I could write a sonnet about this moment. Is it 411 and 911? Uh, New York? Uh, diabetes repair, I guess. But instead of writing a sonnet, though, I think I'll just quote a YouTube comment I saw. YouTube comments, of course, being the sonnets of our time. As Alan McCann, YouTube commenter, wrote of Dr. Spaceman, What is so funny about this guy is he's always acts like he's not saying something f***ed up. And truer words were never typed. That's my outshot. Dr. Spaceman, when they check my DNA, will it tell me what diseases I might get or help me to remember my ATM pin code? Absolutely. Science is whatever we want it to be. That's it for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. This week... My colleagues Christian Duenas and Daniel Baruela saw some people dressed up in old-timey costumes. They theorized that they might have been Amish. They might also have escaped from a Dickens fair. We genuinely do not know. The evidence is pretty slim. I will tell you this, though. I just watched an American experience about the Amish on Amazon Prime, and it was super good. So if you got Amazon Prime, watch that American experience. Okay, I got derailed a little bit there. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian and Casey O'Brien. Production fellow for MaximumFun.org is Jesus Ambrosio. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided to us by the great DJW, Dan Wally. Our thanks to him. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by them and by their label, Memphis Industries. They've got a new single out called Semicircle Song. It's so dope. Go watch the video on the internet. 
If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share all of our interviews with you there, as well as cool stuff on the Internet and the big questions of our time. Like, for example, is the movie A Christmas Story good? As of right now, opinions are deeply divided, but running negative. Now, on Twitter, maybe this is an important lesson, it's running 58-42 in favor of yes, so hard to say for sure. I guess you could even say it's a subjective question. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. We have a lot of credits fun on our show. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 